Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin. Most of us at one time or another, no matter what religion we practice or even if we don't practice any religion at all, have had questions about heaven. Does it exist? If it exists, where is it and how do I get there? Now, the simple Sunday school answer that I grew up with is that heaven is a place, probably somewhere up in the sky, where I will go if I believe in Jesus Christ and live a good life. And that may be a satisfactory answer for some of us. It's a place where I really want to go because it's so wonderful. Plus, I want to avoid the alternative, which is eternal suffering, probably involving unquenchable fire. I want to go to heaven. It's a no-brainer. In the very first verses of the Bible, the writer of Genesis gives us some clues about the whereabouts and the origins of heaven. He wrote, In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome, and it was so. God called the dome sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. Now, in the north woods of Wisconsin, a self-taught astronomer named Frank Kovac has hand-built a planetarium that calls to mind this description from Genesis. Kovac spent years building this marvelous model of the universe in the middle of the woods from plywood and parts purchased from a local home improvement store. With fluorescent paint, he inscribed the stars of the visible night sky by hand on the inside of the creaking dome, the largest mechanical planetarium in the country. Over a dozen stargazers at a time can journey through distant galaxies transported by the planetarium's creator's calming voice, at times feeling as though they're peering into heaven itself. While heaven is not to be seen in the mechanical dome, nor in the apparent dome we see when we seek out utter darkness and look upward and outward, the dome overhead is an illusion, and the illusion is a metaphor for eternity. The newly activated Webb telescope, which is now orbiting the sun at about a million miles from Earth, has started transporting amazing pictures to us of light, which originated almost 14 billion years ago, which puts it back within a mere 500 million years of the origin of the universe breaking news. We still don't have any good pictures of heaven. But I think that we can be excused for thinking that a place as vast and beautiful as the distant galaxies is our ultimate destination in life. 
As a guide that I had at the garden tomb in Jerusalem said, when asked if there, this was really the place that Jesus was buried, it is the place where he was buried, or a very good visual aid. The universe is a very good visual aid for heaven. There are a few biblical descriptions of heaven. One of the most familiar is how Jesus describes it to Thomas when he tells the disciples that he's leaving them. And they say, where are you going? Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. Jesus says that heaven is a still undefined place where we will go to be with him after this life. Some of the translations of the Bible uh, say mansions instead of dwelling places. But we get the impression that it is someplace desirable. The most detailed description of heaven is found in the book of Revelation, where it's described as a great bejeweled city behind gates made of pearl and streets paved with pure gold. It also describes the life of those who will live there. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them by day nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Sounds pretty good. But as wonderful as the description sounds, most people understand them not to be a literal picture of what awaits us in the afterlife. For one thing, from a practical standpoint, pearly gates and golden streets aren't very appealing or comfortable. Jesus' description to Thomas is an attempt to assure him that he will be in the presence of God, and God is always beyond total human understanding. And John, the writer of Revelation, admits that he's describing the contents of his vision or a dream. All of these descriptions serve as a good jumping-off point for our own spiritual imaginations or a very good visual aid. The 19th century poet Emily Dickinson wrote a beautiful poem about heaven as a present reality. It goes, Some keep the Sabbath going to church. I keep it staying at home, with a bobolink for a chorister and an orchard for a dome. Some keep the Sabbath in surplus. I just wear my wings. And instead of tolling the bell for church, our little sexton sings. God preaches, a noted clergyman, and the sermon is never long. So instead of getting to heaven at last, I'm going all along. For Dickinson, heaven is not some ethereal realm to which faithful Christians will be transported upon their death and resurrection. Heaven is to be found in every breath that we take and in the caroling of the bobolink. Heaven is all around us if we just open our eyes to it. Now, my father and I used to spend many Saturday afternoons in the in autumn in the woods, squirrel hunting. 
Most of our time was spent sitting in silence on a log, listening to hear the bark of a squirrel over the sigh of the wind in the treetops. He always said, the best day hunting is when you don't get anything. When I picture my father in heaven, this is what I see. Although serious theologians and religious people criticize Dickinson's poem as a secular reduction of heaven to nature, Jesus also talks about heaven as a present reality. He avoids physical descriptions, but instead uses a series of parables to show us some of the qualities of heaven. Piecing these parables together, maybe we can begin to puzzle out our own picture of heaven. You will notice that Jesus uses the term kingdom of heaven, implying that heaven is not just one place, but a wide or infinite realm in which God dwells and rules. First of all, a parable of a mustard seed. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it's the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, we picture heaven as a well-established place fixed in time and space. Not so, according to this parable. Heaven is a dynamic, growing reality. It starts small like a mustard seed and grows into a large plant or even a tree. Heaven is growing. It provides increasing shelter and safety for God's people. This is an example of Jesus describing the kingdom of heaven as a present reality on earth. Where people hear and accept the word of God, God's influence grows among us. This can occur at many times in many places. Take, for example, the growth of freedom in the world. Throughout history, going back to Jesus' time and beyond, kings and Caesars and czars and small ruling classes exerted absolute power over their subjects. In the most extreme examples, people were bought and sold as property. Grudgingly, these absolute rulers have ceded their powers to people. Now, the pessimist among us will look at the state of the world today, torn apart by war, refugees seeking places to flee from oppressive rulers and regimes, widespread poverty, ongoing racism and anti-Semitism, and ask, this is the kingdom of God? Of course not. The kingdom of God remains aspirational, something we aspire to, something we are moving to. The kingdom of God is in the process of coming into being, already, not yet. As Jesus put it, it's in birthing pangs. But as Christians, we believe that we are moving toward the day when God's reign will be complete. This gives us hope. The Pearl of Great Price parable. Jesus also said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. And then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. These two parables, the hidden treasure and the valuable pearl, 
illustrate the surpassing value of heaven to us. At the present time, the value of heaven may not be apparent. We're too distracted by false substitutes. We focus on the pursuit of money, possessions, power, and earthly goods. But to paraphrase an old country western song, we're looking for heaven in all the wrong places. Heaven is hidden from us. The purpose of Jesus telling these parables in our quest today is to look for heaven in the right places so that we don't miss out in the ultimate purpose and fulfillment of life. If we recognize that the kingdom of heaven is an unsurpassed value, we will focus all that we have in its pursuit. It's like when Jesus found James and John fishing by the sea and calls them to follow him. They immediately cast down their nets, gave up their livelihood, and went on to unquestionably follow him. They were following him in the pursuit of the kingdom of God. This is a challenging vision of heaven for us. We often hear heaven referred to as a reward. A reward for what, I don't know. The idea is that it's something that will just come to us. This parable, however, preaches that it's something we must pursue. As Christians, we believe that pursuit comes when we, like James and John, drop what we're doing to follow Jesus. For each of us, that journey will be different. Some will focus their pursuit in their life and work in the church. Some of us will focus on other vocations of service and honest living. For many, it will mean teaching and nurturing our children in their own quest for the faithful life. The question always is, what is my priority? What is my purpose in life? Am I pursuing the kingdom of heaven? And then there's the parable of the yeast. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Following up on the idea that our pursuit of heaven encompasses our purpose and mission in life, we're apt to feel powerless in the face of the immensity of the problems of the world. We may feel even more insignificant when we look out at the night sky and realize, as Carl Sagan said, the earth on which we live is only a speck of dust suspended on a sunbeam. We are dwarfed by the immensity of things. We are dwarfed by some of the small problems of our community or our family life. But faith is like yeast. I used to make sourdough bread. With a special yeast I obtained from San Francisco, I started a yeast culture, or a mother, to leaven my bread. I was able to keep that culture alive for years, and it served, and it served, and it served as the leavening agent for innumerable loaves of bread. If you are a teacher, for example, how many lives have you changed for the good who will go on to contribute great things and multiply that good? The growth of your leaven can increase exponentially as you are helping bring in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Even small acts of kindness and compassion to strangers can have the same effect. But back to our original analogy, 
the tiny mustard seed can create miraculously bigger things. Well, I've rambled on long enough and I still haven't answered my original question, where is heaven and how do I get there? But that's inevitable. As the poet Robert Browning said in his poem, Andrea del Sarto, a man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what's a heaven for? Heaven will always be tantalizingly beyond our reach, just as the Easter dawn and the resurrection lie always on the horizon, or how the source of the most vivid rainbow can never be pinpointed. But that's what we call hope. And that's what heaven's for. Amen. Thank you for joining me today. May God in heaven smile down upon you every day. <laughs>